Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Harriet Russell. How are you, Harriet? Yeah, good, thanks, John. Excellent. And Alex Newman, how are you, Alex? Fine, thank you, John. Yeah, we're not going to have much of you for longer, are we? Well, yeah, you will. I'll just be a crackly line. Crackly line from Spain. Yeah. 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 Excellent. More on that later. Um, okay, so today we're going to talk about retail because it's been all over the news this week. Uh, and we're going to talk about gold, which you don't talk about very often. Let's start with retail. Retail is, I mean, the big story this week is obviously Sports Direct buying House of Fraser. And this kind of seems a bit mad. It is a bit mad, um, or at least that seems to be what the consensus opinion is. It bought House of Fraser 82 minutes, to be precise, out of administration, although um, the cynics amongst us know that Mike Ashley had been in negotiations for that business for about a week beforehand. I mean, this is no concern of ours. Although as shareholders of Sports Direct, it's a concern, it presumably means they don't have to uh, take on pensions, liabilities and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, a, it's effectively what they call a pre-pack deal. So um, it's very often what happens when companies go into administration. It then means that the administrator sort of packages everything up, minus the debt, minus the pension liability and says, does anyone want, the, want these assets on the cheap? I'm under no illusion <laughs> that discussions around this possibility had probably been floated before the actual fact. I don't think he just swooped in and thought, here's an opportunity. It's caused a bit of contention because uh, there were other names in the fray, people like Philip Day, who uh, is a big retail veteran. But they were going to pay a lot less as far as I understand it, but they were going to take on the pension liability. Exactly. And I suppose it depends where your loyalty lies. If you're concerned with the employees and their futures, then the alleged £50 million um, offer that Philip Day made for a pre-administration House of Fraser um, looks like a fairer deal for them. But the £90 million deal that Mike Ashley had offered post-administration obviously doesn't include the pension, which we have covered in the story. um, And the Pension Protection Fund told us yesterday that they expect it to come into their assessment process um, pretty shortly within the next few weeks. Okay. But in terms of how... I mean... Our business is, you know, our concern is not what happens to House of Fraser employees' pensions. It's, you know, slightly cynical, though that may sound. We care about the prospects of Sports Direct uh, and what this means for them, because mm-hmm. that's the listed share we could buy into. Yeah. So so what does this mean for Sports Direct? Well, we don't really know. That's the problem. In typical sort of Mike Ashley fashion, details have been fairly thin on the ground. Um, but we did approach spokespeople for the company who told us uh, various sort of snippets, if you will. Um, so reports had started circulating. He spoke to The Sun, obviously tabloid newspaper and sort of comments that he were making he was making in there were sort of starting to give a bit of a fuller picture um but you you tweeted something (laughs) that came out very early which is that he i mean it was a sort of slogany type uh strategy yes what is he's going to make it the harrods of of the the high High street Street. the selfridges of well he said for a long time now probably over 18 months ago he made the statement that sports direct was going to become the selfridges of sport well they did buy many many years ago uh the old lily white store on uh piccadilly yeah and since they have bought a brand called flannels which does sell designer gear and we're talking top designer brands like versace and things like that so they do have a luxury element to their business but I think this is probably what gets misunderstood with Mike Ashley from time to time because he is a fan of these sort of grandiose sort of um, press sound bites is that he's trying to turn the Sports Direct brand itself into something else which he's not. I think he looks at this company as much more of a sort of conglomerate really of the high street and within that it's going to have several things. He's going to have a Selfridges of Sport and he's going to have now supposedly with the House of Fraser proper 
property assets, let's face it, at the end of the day, um, an opportunity to um, develop that brand into a more kind of premium version of what it once was. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to say I've got two two children, two teenage children who you've met, mm-hmm. uh, who um, used, we used to buy some trainers for them from Sports Direct, and so now they... They won't go near it with mm. the barge pole. They're in the JD era, yeah. and 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 it, so what I'm what I'm kind of suggesting is 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 a, is actually aware that there is a whole demographic that really doesn't want to shop in 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 their sports direct type shops, and they need to change what they're doing. Yeah, because I think he's very aware that he's now fighting two fronts, which is there is a customer that enjoys that trade down effect. They want things on the cheap. If you want a pair of cheap football football boots because you just have a kick around with your mates once a week, there's definitely that customer that still exists. But you know what JD Sports. Team teaches us is that there is a much more kind of spendy <laughs> for want of a better spendy? word spendy is that a word you've just made up Harry? no it's a hashtag hashtag feeling hashtag. spendy <laughs> it's a thing look it up on instagram more on that later um but yeah, there's a much more sort of willing customer to spend money on designer sports gear. And that customer is a teenager and they're typically aged between 16 and 24. And I think he is very aware of the purchasing power within that demographic and he wants to be able to cater to it so he's trying his best yeah i, th- I think it's quite interesting he owns a big chunk of debenhams as 29%. well 29% yeah it's almost a con- well it's pretty much a controlling stake to be honest and there was a rumor sort of floating around um over the weekend that he would look to combine the businesses obviously they are two of debenhams and house, house of Fraser. Fraser. that kind of makes sense when you think about it it kind of does and it kind of doesn't it does if you're looking at it purely from a sort of asset base perspective um the sorts of assets that they own are exactly the same large space often prime location City centre, blah blah blah. You don't tend to find a sports uh, a sports direct. You find a sports direct in every town. <laughs> you don't tend to find a Debenhams and a House of Fraser in the same town. That is that no, is true. And so you wouldn't necessarily have the cannibalisation effect that um, other chains have suffered from over expansion, like you're talking about. But an analyst pointed out to me today that he he doesn't think that the customer is exactly the same. The sort of customer that's going into a Debenhams is perhaps a little bit more bargain conscious. True. The fact that a lot of Debenhams now have entire floors, like the one in Clapham Junction near where I live, entire floors directed to Sports Direct. You know, it's it's not the same customer that's heading into House of Fraser where things like beauty counters and foot sh- footwear departments are just that little bit more kind of premium and targeting people who are going to go in and spend 60 75 pounds on a perfume it's not always going to be the case in a debenhams i don't mm. think can i ask, can I ask a question is it uh, for mike ashley are there lessons from the sports direct success that he can easily apply to to house of fraser or is it you know is it is it is it easy to be a generalist in uh, in in the world of retail yeah that's an interesting point um i think he very much believes that i think he believes in department stores i think he believes that they're in their position in the sort of high street kind of um, makeup and the fact that he is throwing around words like Selfridges and Harrods obviously suggests that he's thinking of a particular kind of environment and a particular kind of shopping experience. But my belief, I suppose, and maybe it's a misguided one, is that not everyone can afford to shop in a Selfridges or a Harrods and there needs to be something that is slightly more accessible. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of, I think he's on the right lines here. Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, when my kids were up here doing their work experience, uh, we went to Selfridges. It's an extraordinary... It's it's it an is. experience. It it's is. an experience. And I think and this is what he's more concerned with, actually, is not so much like we're going to have designer gear in every single house of Fraser and you won't be able to get anything for under 250 quid. I think what he's talking 
about and what he has talked about with the Harrods of the High Street is personalisation of shopping, which is something that we've looked at a little bit in the sector focus this week, um, which is making people feel like every time they walk into a store that it's been designed for them. It's, it's having all the right brands as well. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, House of Fraser has Ted Baker, which I know my kids love, which we, which we like as a, as mm-hmm. a share. It's kind of bringing that into accessible price, but it's not cheap, House, uh, Ted Baker. So, you know, it's kind of... There's so many things that you could do to make a department store work. Yeah. I mean, they are the thing that's killing them is business rates, which we've got to yeah, talk we're about look at in, in, next, in week. next week's mag. Um, um, what's interesting, has he learned from Sports Direct? I don't think so. I think what he's learning more from, perhaps, is looking at the general retail sector and thinking, okay, well, who are the brands that are outperforming the market? And it's Ted Baker, it used to be Super Dry, it's Hotel Chocolat, it's JD Sports. All of these brands are slightly positioned above average income mm-hmm. and they have that slight sort of aspirational premium food to them. The Sports Direct approach was, I mean, their successes often come from buying brands. So mm-hmm. buying, you know, uh, the manufacturers yeah. uh, or, or, or at least the brand that they could then build the manufacturing from and actually owning a lot of the product as mm-hmm. well. So maybe there's an element of that that he can do in, in the department store world. Yeah, and he's done it to a certain extent with retail names in general. We've talked a lot in the past about doing a bigger feature, but it never seems to sort of be the right time around quite how much Sports Direct itself owns of the high street. You've mentioned Debenhams already, but it has stakes in French Connection, in Findel, in Game. Um, and so he really is building himself an empire. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he sort of transitioned, I suppose, that Sports Direct model out. And House of Fraser is just the next step in that. I guess the, the longer the short of it, though, what's the big, the big question is, what do we think of Sports Direct? So we, I mean, they've had some problems over the last couple of years and yeah. bad PR. <laughs> yeah. are, are we turning positive yet? No, not yet. We, we need to really understand, I suppose, what the damage is, because the thing that I have actually looked at in business rates, I have actually talked about House Fraser quite heavily in that feature due out next week, um, which is that, you know, the biggest problem that the analysts have identified already is that from day one, the day that that comes under Sports Direct ownership, it's a complete and utter cash drain. Um, they've got way more money going out the door than they've got coming in. So... Sports Direct is a cash-rich business, thankfully. It's in a very healthy net cash position. But immediately that's going to be a drain. So they need to think about how they're going to get on top of that quite quickly. He has said that previously House of Fraser wanted to close 31 of 59 stores when it was under its uh, company voluntary arrangement. He's now said he wants to keep 80% of the stores open. (laughs) So quite how he's going to get around the fact that most of them um, are generating a loss. I'll be interested to see how he's going to do that. Yeah. So it's too early to turn bullish. Um, just because I just don't know what his plan is yet. Frankly. I must admit, I, I find it hard to unpick what he owns and what the what Sports Direct owns. But, well, yes. and I think the governance thing is is still there lurking in the background yeah. at all times. But yeah. uh, he, he's a you know he's a character. He um, is a character. But in terms of being exposed to the liabilities of House of Fraser, obviously that's not an issue, seeing as the way that they've structured this deal. I think he might do something good with it. Yeah, and maybe he finds a buyer for Newcastle United, and he's able to pump a load more money into whatever he's got next <laughs> I think the Newcastle fans want that or at least that's what Jonas tells me they've always wanted that <laughs> but they always want someone else to, to own the club but there you go shall we uh, before we're going to come back to retail um, let's break it up with gold sure we haven't talked about this for ages and uh, you know I'm sure lots of our readers are have some gold yeah uh, in one form or another yeah but yeah you've written the lead story on this this week yeah well 
if our if our listeners or and readers do hold gold, though, they may have noticed that it's not been a great few months for the yellow metal. Um, it's not been a disastrous few months either. I mean, it's sure, um, but I mean, we've not. But you know, it's it's down in dollar terms at least to uh, to sort of a twenty month low. Uh, if you you know if you're looking at your assets in sterling terms, it's it's actually held up a lot better as a store of value, obviously because the. The pound has underperformed the dollar by quite a bit, but but, um, but, but that's why you would own it exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that's the, the the sort of point we make in the in the uh, the piece this week is that it's really although gold, the price of gold may have fallen, it, the, the the theory that it's a strong hedge against the world's reserve current currency, the dollar, uh, has only really been demonstrated by the the, the short term price collapse recently because the dollar has been incredibly incredibly strong. So mm, mm. it's not a it's not a metal which has driven in the same degree as others as uh, by supply and demand dynamics. We'll come on to that because there's yeah. been some results this week which are about supply and sure. demand. Um, but yeah, carry on, sorry. Yeah, no. So, I mean, the demand story is is almost uncorrelated. So it's, uh, you know, it's a very, very unusual asset, gold, but it's uh, placed in a portfolio. I don't think it's really been undone by the by the fact that we're now to uh, under 1,200 um dollars an ounce uh, for gold whereas we were you know well above 1300 just a couple of months ago yeah but but you know it's uh it's one of those it's one of those things i mean it is an up and down metal yeah i mean it's like oil recently yeah, yeah it's done the same thing i mean it's you know yeah and uh, I mean, volatile i think it is, is the volatile word. yeah it is volatile um i mean in terms of in terms of uh, what, one interesting uh, point is that the etf inflows in recent months have, have remained quite strong in Europe. So there's clearly a European investor which is nervous about the political outlook or nervous about local currencies and wants their exposure to gold to increase. US investors, on the other hand, are are just are just flocking out. And that may be because the US domestic economy is so strong You've got a yield with very little risk if you're if you're buying ten year bonds. So why why bother hanging on to uh, an asset which is no one's liability, but also it's not it's not going to give you any, so any return. Anything. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Gold is obviously the the interest uh, rate outlook is obviously important for gold, yes. and that that's moving in a direction that isn't supportive of the gold price. Yeah, so we're expecting a couple more uh, rate hikes from the Fed this year, and uh, the the tone remains fairly hawkish. That's not going to be a good outlook for for gold in in the near term at all because. The fl- capital flows are just are just heading more and more in the direction of the dollar, which uh, you know is you know if you look at emerging markets, that whole story is really a similar a similar one to to the one we're seeing in gold at the moment. But this, this is why I find it so complicated. I mean, you know, emerging market uh, equities are having a tough time at the moment, so you know that you'd imagine that would force people back into safe haven assets. Yeah. You know, in the UK, we've we've had some inflation figures which are looking like inflation is 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 on the up again, yeah. and that would be supportive of the gold price. So it's, you know, it's. It, it's it's a strange one. It's a strange yeah. one. It's also you know it's also a, it is very complicated. And it's a global market, so you have you know where you might have pockets of inflation in the UK and and elsewhere. You know there are so many different factors which are, are going to drive the the gold market. And you know jewelry and uh, and bar and coin demand. You know that makes up a huge huge chunk of it. Central banks are, are buyers all around all around the world. You have so many competing uh, factors in in the way gold is seen by different people at any one time so it's uh it is very very different to, to other commodities in that I'm, sense i mean i guess what that says is don't try and trade the price of gold yeah I mean, it, it's it's too hard yeah I, and we wouldn't give a you know we wouldn't give a view on you know we might may feel bullish occasionally on uh, gold and I, I think 
I think argue, arguably now, I mean, the dollar can't rise forever. So at some point, you would there, there would be sensible reasons to be bullish about gold. But setting price targets, which analysts unfortunately are forced to do, is a bit of a bit of a fool's errand, really. I mean, whatever's happening, you know, whichever way the gold price is going, and at the moment is is down. Yeah, gold miners are very leveraged to that price. So, so we've had some results this week from Rangold in yeah. particular, which I mean, the share price is ugly. Yeah, it's very ugly. Um, so, and, and you know, when we're talking we're talking about gold gold investing, a lot of the time when our magazine is talking about, we're talking about investing in the miners. So. So gold price collapse is more and more more and more pronounced, and that the long term potential of or downside of bear markets in the gold price are insolvent gold miners. So you know you can you can lose a lot lot more if you are if you have all your gold exposure in the miners. So it's, it's a leverage play, absolutely. Yeah, and and Rangold you know held up to be the best gold stock out there. It's the largest gold miner in the FTSE uh, in the FTSE All Share in the FTSE One Hundred. It is entirely uh, Africa exposed. It has a lot of Political growing political risk in its portfolio. It has very strict and and criteria for new project commissions, which is, I'd argue, is a, a really a really really good thing. But yeah, I mean, it's been it's been battered in the last few months by strike after strike. Compounding that is uh, is uh, the sales price it can get for any one ounce it produces. So I mean, essentially, the strikes contribute to a rising cost profile. Yes, indeed, and uh, you know, a couple of its its mines are aging. I think in in the DRC, you've got this whole issue as well with a, a change in the mining charter, which threatens to potentially add massive royalty and tax uh, costs to what they're producing. Uh, and the Kibali mine in in the DRC is is really the star asset in the portfolio at the moment. So that that's a really really serious uh, long term risk there. There's actually another small miner that reported this week, Caledonia Mining, yeah. uh, another small gold miner. Their share price has been flying, and yeah. you're worried about that by the looks of your recommendation there. Yeah, it may it may it may seem very. Um, I mean, it's 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 a weird one to juxtapose with Rangold because we you know we put Caledonia on a sell uh, now. They're having some issues with their expansion plan so they're they're hoping to effectively double their um annual production capacity they're based in zimbabwe they've had a, a very very good run recently because of some of the changes in the corporate ownership rules and you know there's a lot of political transition in zimbabwe at the moment means that they are likely to be entitled to a far greater share of the earnings from their mine it's the blanket mine which has been producing for decades and decades um it also I mean, I, I feel we had the uh, we had this the CEO of Caledonia on a podcast a few months ago. I asked him this. It still seems to remain a, a real a real issue is that they a lot of people die at their mine. So one of the ugly sides of uh, gold mining, and given their size, I mean, it's still quite still quite a small operation. You know, on recent on recent form, the health and safety record has not really has not really held up. Combine that with some of the production, some of the ore or issues they've been having, some of the some of the production issues they're they're having there. I'm turned a bit negative on the story. Fair um, enough. Sometimes uh, it, you have to sort of take profits, I suppose. And when we tipped them, they were very very underrated. So, so it's a tough time to be in the gold industry. It is, yeah, particularly if you're mining mining the stuff. But there's no reason not to buy gold right now. It's quite yes. cheap, isn't it? Really, it is cheap. Yeah, it's yeah. Cheap. Well, not if you're paying in sterling. Yeah, I think it's nine. Was it nine hundred and thirty pounds for an ounce in uh, in sterling at the moment? Yeah, worth having, I'd say. Yeah, let's stick with the results section, Harriet. There's a little cluster of results this week from your. Uh, wait, it's retail, mm-hmm. but it's a strange, uh, this a funny end of retail. It's a little it's pocket motor retail, mm. um, and cars are interesting for the UK. I mean, we love spending money on cars in this country, uh, and we've had a bit of a strange up and down year. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's a cyclical market, I suppose, like many others. Um, and it's it's very tied to um, macroeconomics, basically. So if the if the pound is doing one thing, then you can count on the car market to do another, um, particularly in the absence of any sort of government stimulus like the scrappage schemes that we saw around the last financial crisis. Yeah, I, so I was under the impression that there had been a, quite an, an interesting change to the car retail market in terms of the way that, that car purchasing was financed. Mm-hmm. And this meant that the cycle had been smoothed out somewhat. It is. It is. PCPs, personal contract plans, um, the way that people can pay off cars over fixed contracts is has definitely helped support it. There's no doubt. But we also haven't seen political uncertainty um, in the way that we have for the last two years for a while. So that has acted as a negative drag, as has sterling's depreciation um, against not just the dollar, but other global currencies too, mainly because most of the manufacturers that we're talking about with new cars come from outside of the UK. So we're talking about a lot of import pricing and things like that, which um, have an impact on what the retailers themselves can hope to charge for these cars. That, That said, I mean, there was some softness in the UK new car market last year that seems to be washing out <laughs> the rate of decline is slowing that famous corporate phrase from the uh, society of uh, motor manufacturers and traders which is sort of the main industry body that we follow yeah it's a bit like sort of when sainsbury's or mns says the rate of decline is slowing <laughs> you sort of think okay does that mean it's getting better or are things just not quite as getting bad? worse slower, worse, slower. <laughs> But yeah. still, I mean, they're still making decent money, the the the, uh, the auto traders. They are if they can, can can control their own cost bases, like many other retailers. Um, and that's what sort of helps pull them into the wider sector, I suppose, and makes them relevant. Because if they can do work in the margins, like Lookers has and like Marshall Motor has, then, you know, they can still deliver a, a sort of secure bottom line for their yeah. investors. So, so Lookers have had results this week. We've got them on a buy. Marshall Motor, which is the aim... Slightly smaller, AIM traded. Yeah, it's much, uh, smaller, much smaller, yeah. Results this week, got them on a buy. And uh, Pendragon as well. Not sure we're quite as optimistic there. No, they haven't been able to offset quite as much cost as the others. And the things that the others have also done, which has been quite clever, I suppose, or at least well-timed, is Lucas has done a property disposal and Marshall Motor has disposed of its leasing business. And the profit on those disposals, because they were decent businesses in decent shape, obviously one of them was a freehold, um, have helped to sort of boost the reported profit line quite nicely. Pendragon hasn't really had anything like that. And it's also been up against record comparatives, um, which has been been difficult for them as well. Kind of sounds to me like they're shuffling deck chairs a bit to make the numbers look better. They kind of are, but I also just think it's it's a good time to do that because when the market's depressed, it's quite hard to sell assets. Yeah. Um, you know, so they've actually managed to find quite interesting buyers. I mean, Marshall was telling me about their leasing division. They were pretty much one of the only retailers left whose sort of leasing business wasn't owned by a bank. Um, so they actually sold to the Bank of Ireland for a really decent price. And uh, it was pretty much the biggest deal they've done second to their Ridgeway acquisition two years ago. I have a lot of respect for the management team there. It's pretty tightly held amongst the family, um, but they don't have a family CEO, which I think is important. Um, but he has been in the group for a long time. He's a bit of a Steve Rower. He's a bit of a lifer. Okay. Um, so yeah, I like that business. We like family business. We've both written on those. We they, have. They, yeah. They tend to uh, they tend to outperform actually. Yeah. Uh, over time. But uh, there you go. Family fortunes. That was the name of family the, fortunes. Harry, let's stick with uh, let's stick with retail. Slightly different um, end of retail. The social media end of retail, which is the subject of this week's sector focus. Mm-hmm. Um, Tell me about this. I'm as I'm a social media luddite, <laughs> but people are buying stuff in ways that you, 
the old fogies amongst us couldn't possibly imagine. Yeah, it's it's not a topic that I've really had chance to explore um, in many other sections of the magazine, and it's because it's not really a very sort of investable, I suppose, space. But it's really important. But it's so it's important. Yeah, because it affects everybody and traditional retailers especially and there are some people like Burberry um, and some of the online pure plays like Boohoo getting it really right and really tapping into those trends and others like Marks and Spencers who are really on the back foot with it Um, and that might sound like an obvious comparison because we're always talking about online versus offline but we've actually been able in the sector focus to talk about some really small private companies that have just seen astonishing growth literally by just using Instagram. Yeah, so this is the thing. It's the Instagram thing. This is the this is the bit that I don't understand because I don't use Instagram. Mm-hmm. So, so I I tell you what I do use Pinterest. Yeah. For inspiration. Yeah. But as a shopping experience, it's an absolute disaster. Yeah. And I'm sure we've talked about this on the podcast before. However, Instagram people are now able to look at stuff they like and buy it. Yeah. And that that I think that's I mean that is that's a killer app. Yeah, it's a killer app. It pretty much rules the world. Um, I know that if Megan was here, our technology correspondent, she'd probably have some thoughts on this. But it's owned by Facebook, which is investable, obviously. And it was a platform that they bought about six years ago. And since then, they have introduced a function literally called shopping on Instagram. It couldn't be more straightforward. Technology itself isn't straightforward. It's very sophisticated. But it, it basically allows what they call shoppable posts. So anyone who a brand or any individual, quite frankly, can post a picture and provide a basically direct shopping link through the app. So people who are on there for fun or more of a social experience can suddenly find themselves drawn into making a retail purchase that they didn't expect to find. And it's really because of something that has been dubbed BFF marketing, which is a new phenomenon in the kind of media and advertising space. Is that best friends forever? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do explain that in the cuff, in the copy. BFF, rough translation, best friend forever. <laughs> Just in case people were unaware. But what what it really I'm does? I'm pretty sure all of our readership are unaware. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe that does them a disservice, John. Apologies to anyone listening who I don't think so was familiar with it. Hey, dan- they downloaded a podcast. They're yeah, exactly. On the pulse. <laughs> Forefront of technology, um, but it's basically I- a marketing strategy which takes a sort of millennial-friendly, very chatty and informal, intimate approach. And Boohoo has done this particularly well, particularly since it bought Pretty Little Thing through that related party transaction. I call it that because it was owned by the founder's son. (laughs) But they will, if you go on those sites, which I have, obviously for pure research purposes, and look at stuff, it will then send you an email and the openings of the emails will be very informal. There'll be things like, hey, girl, or hey, hey boo. Girl. Hey, boo. <laughs> <laughs> Look what you forgot. And it's all very, um, we're your best friend. We're, your, we're part of the girl gang um, type of marketing. And it supposedly has done absolutely stellar things for particularly startup brands. But like I say, you know, there are established companies using this approach too. And the sort of stats that we've looked at, particularly um, for some US brands that basically didn't exist before they got on Instagram, and they have trebled their sales month to month just through using Instagram. They have no shops. Some of them don't even have a formal website. And yet they're making $175,000 a month. I'll I'll, I'll get this wrong, but one of the Kardashian sisters... Is uh, is now a major major name in in makeup and is, is <laughs> was was on a, a magazine cover recently 
as as a self-made billionaire. Forbes, yeah. Forbes, yeah, yeah. Self-made, I think, is the uh, yeah. is the phrase that people had a problem with. But yes, sure. Kylie Jenner, the youngest Kylie of the yeah. Kardashian Jenner clan, she's just been twenty-one this week, and she is going to be a billionaire through selling what they call lip kits, which are basically liquid lipsticks and it all started because she had lip filler and posted a picture on instagram and people couldn't get enough of it yeah lip filler mm-hmm. what's that uh like, like poly, poly or... filler is it <laughs> <laughs> well, actually i think it's juvederm isn't it that they use in lips i don't know for anyone listening without the visuals i don't have lip injections this is why we need, this is why we need harriet's cover retail because i have no clue what you're talking about this well here. It's a fascinating it's a fascinating space. Like I say, a lot of it in and of itself, these small brands that we've looked at aren't investable on a public scale, but the implications for public companies is enormous. Okay, so this says to me two things. One, that if Facebook owns Instagram and Instagram is to come with this massive shopping pr- uh, platform, then perhaps we shouldn't be so negative on Facebook. Right. Secondly... Why are Marks and Spencers on Instagram? <laughs> they probably are. But what's interesting, we spoke to um, a research market group called Red Hot Penny and the chaps there were telling me that they've done enormous amounts of research. We've only able been able to print a little bit of um, of the research they've done. But they inst- interestingly, what they have found is that established names like Marks and Spencer have actually just used social media for customer feedback. That seems to be the main root of what they use mm. it for. Customer feedback, though, through social media is generally just moaning. Yes, and this is a problem because it creates a very negative space around your brand if that's all you're using it for. And actually, there was a story printed today by the FT around there's going to be an investigation now conducted by the Competition and Markets Authority into um, advertising on Instagram and around, particularly around celebrity influencers. They call them influencers because they're not celebrities for any other reason other than what they post on Instagram. They're Insta-famous and they get paid by brands, not Marks and Spencers usually, but, you know, flash brands like Boohoo. Um, flash brands, Insta-famous. Oh, this is, this, this is literally you're Talking a foreign language, spendy. Right <laughs> Hashtag feeling spendy. Yeah. But yeah, they're paid and to go on and hawk products and encourage other people to buy them. And and the ASA has really not done enough work to make that a transparent process. Mm-hmm. So people who are on Instagram think that these people have bought this product themselves. They haven't. They've been sent it for free, and they think that they are just recommending it to friends. They're not. They're being paid to advertise it, and it's a whole murky world that needs a lot more regulation. So that is a that is a downside risk to that, this space. That's true and that's something that we've talked about in, in the context of social media and the big big tech is the, yeah. is the, the fact that there is this big regulatory thing. Yeah, there's a lot of antitrust them. stuff coming um, which, which is going to be a problem for sure but in the meantime it has the potential to decimate sales for what are now seen as real dinosaur retailers. Right, now I know how to buy stuff mm. properly. Well the, the big thing and the big catchphrase that I sort of end the piece with is that this is the new high street. Mm. Um, I think you might be right. Yeah. Especially if the high street is being wiped out by business rates, which we will talk about <laughs> yes. next week's magazine. <laughs> thank you, Harriet. Uh, thank you, Alex. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Let me just talk you through what else we've got in the mag. We've gone through quite a lot of it. Um, we haven't even talked about the cover feature, which we were going to do. This week, it's about defensive shares or what we used to think of as defensive shares and whether they are still defensive. Supermarkets isn't in there. No longer defensive. Not really defensive anymore. They might be becoming a bit more defensive again. But uh... Yeah, and certainly if consolidation goes down the route that we're seeing um, with this Sainsbury's and Asda stuff, the Tesco Booker thing, um, it could become a much tighter space again. Yeah, I mean, and if Mike Ashley takes over the high street, then, you know, that yeah. could, that'd be cool. It's just going to be Mike Ashley too. and Tesco. Um, <laughs> That's it. Oil and gas. Have we, did we, we didn't talk about them in there either. They no. are quite no. defensive, but also... 
Who knows what the outlook has? Indeed, that's a different, uh, it's a different, whole different volatility uh, game, isn't it? Yeah, with, but we've talked, we've talked about utilities, yeah. and we've talked about uh, sin stocks, tobacco, that kind of thing, which have always been traditionally defensive, and seeing whether they still are. Yeah. I think it's an important question to ask, uh, and hopefully to answer as we go into what could be a difficult period for, for stock markets ahead. All the usual comment, lots and lots of results, the usual personal finance and funds uh, content, which they will talk about in their podcast tomorrow. Um, but yeah. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you all for contributing. Uh, Test your defensive. Can defensive shares still protect you from the bears? Uh, Available in all good news agents. Or get online and subscribe. And uh, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. I'm on holiday. Hooray!